It's my delight to have Professor Nancy Piercy back on the broadcast. We've had Nancy on before on both her book, Total Truth, as well as Saving Leonardo, which is a book I so love. I wish more people would own that book and give it away. It's such a great piece of work. Nancy is the author of many books. We're going to be talking about her forthcoming book called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And by the way, as always in the show notes, we have all the information about our guest and how you can pre-order that book. Anywhere books are sold, you can pre-order, and you need to get that book in your queue so you'll get it when it comes out, God willing, this summer. I'm going to to read all her bio. I've known Nancy from afar, and again, she's been on the podcast before. She's a brilliant scholar, professor, researcher. I always feel Rarely do I have a guest where I really feel like I'm kind of an Igmo. And when I talk to Nancy, I always feel like I'm way behind. (laughs) So, Nancy, thanks for coming on the broadcast today. We appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again. First of all, before we get into the text, which is an amazing book, I always like to know, what was the provocation? Because you come from, admittedly, a feminist mindset, and you tell a little bit about your story in the preface about how you grew up with two different fathers, so to speak. And part of that contributed to perhaps your positioning and then Labrie factored in. But at what point in this in this process, I'm sure it was 40 years in the making, but did you say, I need to talk about masculinity and why this is such a vilified subject today to throw men under the bus? Yes, yes. Well, it is true that one reason I wanted to write it is because the hostility against men has become so acceptable. In mainstream publications, the Washington Post had an article called, Why Can't We Hate Men? And the Huffington Post had an article saying, my favorite hashtag is, kill all men. You can buy t-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. And then even books, books are coming out with titles like, I hate men. No good men. Are men necessary? And I thought, wait a minute, where did this come from? And even some men are jumping on the bandwagon. You probably saw this. It was a couple months ago. The director of the movie Avatar came out saying, testosterone is a toxin. Yeah, James Cameron. Work it out of your system. Mm -hmm. Another male author writes, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. So even men are jumping on the bandwagon. So sort of the trigger that made me say, we've got to address this was just the incredible hostility against men. There was a survey done in 2016 in which 46% of American men said society seems to punish men these days just for being men. And there was another one, by the way, that one's in the book, but another one came out just recently, so it's not in the book. This was a survey in Britain where 55% of men, more than half, said these days discrimination against men has become worse than discrimination against women. But whether you agree with that or not, that is a large percentage of the population who thinks men are getting a bad deal these days. And so it is something we really need to address. I wanted to find out where did this even come from? You know, you can't address something effectively if, if you don't look at where it came from and how it developed. So that was one of the major goals of the book. You know, most of my years have been as a pastor I was a few years at the Moody Bible Institute, but just in the 43 years of you know what I've been doing, I couldn't compliment a woman's dress anymore. I couldn't say, Nancy, your hair looks nice. 
the last church I served with, there was a number of women staff. I would even preface it because I'm this old creepy guy, right? And I would say, is it all right for me to say your hair looks really nice today? And they'd laugh and make fun of me. But I said, in this culture, the unsafe triggers. And so what you find with most men, and I broke bread with a pastor friend recently who is in big trouble with this church because a woman accused him. She felt unsafe, and it was anonymously by all things. And so there is this posture men have taken that says, I can't say anything. I'm the last person you can vilify. A white male over 60 is the punching bag for all this stuff. And just one comment when I was reading your book, my dad always hated the cartoon Dagwood. And you're old enough to remember that because it always made the guy look to be the idiot. And I guess I inherited his gene because when everybody loved Tool Time with Tim Allen, Home Improvement, I hated it because it was self-deprecating male humor. And I went, yeah, we can do that, but what signal are we sending? And you go back in time, and you do a fabulous job in your book, even going back in history, where some of this began. And I love the plates you put in your book to talk about the Puritans and the feminization of angels and so forth. So where do you think the open hostility really began historically? Well, historically, you have to go back to the Industrial Revolution. A lot of people think, oh, we need to just go back to the 1960s and second wave feminism. No, it's much earlier. And that was one of the surprising things that I found in writing this book is that if we want to deal with it effectively, we have to go much further back. In the colonial age, prior to the Industrial Revolution, families worked together. Husband and wife are working together. The father is working with his children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family shop. Of course, in early America, it was also primarily Christian. Most people were Christian at the time. And so there was a biblical view of masculinity that was the dominant ethos, the dominant social expectation of the time, focused more on men's caretaking role. Their authority in the family meant they were responsible for the common good. That's the way it was expressed back then. That authority didn't mean you can do whatever you want. You know, you're, you're the big shot. No, it meant you had responsibility for the common good of the marriage, of the family, of the church. The expectation was not only that you would be the father of your family, but a common phrase back then was that you would be the father of the community, that you would bring this fatherly ethos out into your activities, even in the community. And all of this changed really with the Industrial Revolution when work was taken out of the home, so there were no longer any family industries. Men had to follow their work out of the home, of course. And that's when you start to see the rhetoric change, because as men were no longer working alongside people they loved and had a moral bond with, they were now working in competition as an individual with other men. And so it seemed necessary to look out for number one, be assertive, be aggressive, be egocentric. Selfish ambition became a virtue instead of a vice. As a result, already in the 19th century, you see language of people protesting that men are losing that biblical concept of masculinity. They are beginning to be driven by money and personal advancement and careerism. I quote a uh, letter to the editor at a newspaper back at the time saying, in the pursuit of economic success, American men are losing their soul. They're they're beginning to worship the marketplace, worship success. Success has become their idol. And so 
that language of, of our manner changing and we don't like it <laughs> was already back in the 19th century. So that's where we have to go if we want to look at how can we address this today more effectively. Let me read you a quote. So the early feminists actually said this. Here's Elizabeth Cady Stanton, one of the first feminists. She gave a speech titled The Destructive Male. Well, you can kind of guess where she's going. <laughs> the Destructive Male. The male element is a destructive force, stern, selfish, aggrandizing, loving war, violence, conquest, acquisition, and breeding discord, disorder, disease, and death. <laughs> so that hostile language, you know, <laughs> it wasn't just the Washington Post in our day. It was only yeah. in the 19th century. And listen to her solution. The solution was that what America needs, this is again a direct quote, is a new evangel of womanhood to exalt purity, virtue, morality, true religion, to lift man up to the higher realms of thought and action. And of course, evangel means gospel. So she was preaching right. a gospel of feminism. Means. So this double standard where you know women were expected, in a sense, hold men in line, but on the other hand, that meant men were expected to simply not be moral, to not have integrity. That tension between the sexes really starts in the 19th century. My book goes back all the way there and sort of traces the history so that we can understand it better. You know, the idea of, you talked about the family and the fam the neighborhood sort of, you know, that he was the father of the community, if you will. Um, I've officiated, I don't know, innumerable weddings and I will read the Ephesians 5 passage, and I will often observe there's fewer verses to the wife, and there's many more to the husband. And I will often just read the first sentence where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I said, if you just stop there, there's no chauvinism. There's no patriarchal authority hammer. My job is to love Cindy as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He died for her. He put himself in her place, and that's true love. And so as a father and husband, imperfect as though your husband is and, and as I am, that has been a mantra for me, bad word, a message for me to say, I'm not the domineering force here. Now, there are times you play a dad card, rarely, but there are times you say, okay, folks, this is what we're going to do, and there's no win or lose here, but I've only played that four or five times in 43 years of marriage, point being for a man to be a mask, a biblical man is very different than anything we see in the culture, Nancy. Yes, and, and this was actually the ultimate reason I wrote the book. The final trigger that said I have to write the book, and that is that sociological studies have been done of evangelical men. It's not widely known. Let me read again a couple of hostile yeah. quotes that people assume that evangelical men are like exhibit A of patriarchal right. and oppression and abuse. And it was easy to find quotes on the internet. Here's a few. <laughs> Conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. It is no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. And a third one. The theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. The problem with these accusations is that they ignore the data from the social sciences. Sociologists have 
looked at these accusations and said, well, where's the evidence? Do you have any evidence for this? And so they went back and did the studies. And now it's very clear that evangelical Christian family men, in other words, husbands and fathers, who attend church regularly are actually the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers compared to the average American family man. Evangelical men are the most loving to their wives. And by the way, the wives are interviewed separately. These are the wives reporting that they feel the most loved and appreciated by their husbands. They're the most engaged with their children, both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline like setting screen time and setting bedtime. They have the lowest level of divorce of any group in America. And then the real stunner, they have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any major group in America. Even Christians don't know this. For me to write this book, I had to dig into the academic sociological literature and say, wow, Christians need to know this. We need to be pulling this out and letting people know that Christians are actually doing a very good job. You cite the Me Too movement and how that jumped over. And, and unfortunately, we did have some very prominent evangelical Baptist leaders that were egregious in some of their behaviors and, quote, cover-up. But again, in the whole, that wasn't my experience. There's some really good pastors who were good, courageous leaders that stepped in and did things. And again, anecdotally, we taught marriage conferences for decades, and we were told the divorce rate was the same in the Christian home as in the secular community. Right, right. In fact, when I was doing my research, I discovered that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders, and it is false. Let me me start with a quote from um, my go-to sociologist was Brad Wilcox. He's considered perhaps the top marriage researcher in the country, and he teaches at UVA, University of Virginia. He wrote an article in the New York Times in which he said, It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America, you know, they're looking at the wives. The assumption is that, you know, male headship leads to oppression of women. It silences them. And so he says the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Mm. Full 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. I was amazed that the New York Times would print that, by the way. (laughs) And then he says, you know, you academics, speaking to his own fellow colleagues, right? You academics need to cast aside your prejudices (laughs) against evangelicals and religious conservatives in general and realize that they actually do have evangelical Protestant men actually have the best marriages. Mm -hmm. They're the most loving husbands, the most engaged fathers. Now, the reason that there's a, a the statistics show something else is that we hear that, that Christians divorce at the same rate as others. The researchers went back to the data, and they separated out truly committed, authentic Christian men who attend church regularly versus nominal Christian men. And so these are men who, on a survey like this, might check the Baptist box. 
but okay. whose Christianity is mostly cultural, you know, family background. They don't really attend church regularly. The differences between these two groups is shocking. Nominal Christian men have the worst marriages. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They're the least engaged with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce, higher than secular men. And then the real shocker, they have the highest rates of domestic violence of any major group in America, higher than secular men. And so this is why the statistics get so skewed. If you take the truly authentically committed Christian men who are better than secular men, and then you put them alongside nominal Christian men who are worse than secular men, if you put these two groups together to say, well, you know, let's study evangelicals, you're going to get a misleading statistic. And that's another reason that most of us don't realize that actually truly committed Christian men are doing far better than any other group in America. And I wanted to get that message out to mm -hmm. Christian churches and Christian men that they actually are doing a great job. You know, it's hard for, um, and I speak as a white, you know, 66-year-old male, it's hard to have the courage to say these things because you are going to get the vitriol. And that idea of, I often tell our folks, I said, you know, you, you have to be courageous, speak the truth, and smile. <laughs> you can't be mad about this. If you succumb to the argument of, let's say, the rhetoric at the view, no one wins. It's just noise. But if you can have a conversation where you are confident, you're courageous, stick to facts, broken record. And I think it also, we underestimate the courage it gives other people. You know, in my circles, Nancy, watching the younger pastors want to get away from the word evangelical and Protestant. And I'm scratching my head, go, wait, evangelical is a biblical term. You know, the euangelion is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can understand Protestant perhaps being, you know, unimportant or important vis-a-vis -vis Catholic or Episcopalian. At the same time, I'm curious in your research, the trend of getting away, distancing from our father's Oldsmobile, all things Christian, all things masculine, it seems as though we just don't have the courage to say, wait a minute, I'm not that way. Well, and wait a minute, we now have the data. You know, it, this has been subject to empirical testing and the tests were of evangelical Protestant men because those were the ones who were being accused of being mm -hmm. domineering tyrants. So that's who they studied. I mentioned the sociologist who got published in the New York Times. So he's Catholic. So he, in a sense, doesn't have a dog in this fight. He didn't start right. out to try to prove that evangelical fathers and husbands were better. He just found it to be the case. And this is how the researchers themselves delineated the group they were studying. They were studying evangelical Protestant family men. This is found all around the world as well. In my book, Toxic War on Masculinity, I focus mostly on America because, you know, otherwise your book gets too big. Right. But I have a few examples from other countries. And in Colombia, there was an anthropologist. She was a Marxist. And so she expected to find that Protestantism would lead to, you know, patriarchal males who dominate over their family. And she was shocked to discover the opposite. She said, no, no, machismo culture tells men that they're a true man, you know, when they're out separated from their family, out with the guys, 
drinking, gambling, visiting prostitutes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what she found is that when a man converts and becomes an evangelical Protestant, he stops drinking, he stops gambling, he stops visiting prostitutes. His money goes to his family. His family experiences a rise in their standard of living. This anthropologist concludes that if there is a women's movement <laughs> that helps women, it's evangelical Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Then there was a larger study done by an anthropologist at the University of London. And she included not only Latin America, but also Africa and Asia. And she found the same thing. She found the evangelical gender paradox. You know, the paradox meaning we expect that evangelicalism, because it teaches male headship, would be oppressive to women. But in fact, she said it creates a partnership between women and the church where they hold men accountable for the typical male vices, like drinking and adultery and visiting prostitutes and so on. In her words, the church helps men put the needs of the household above their own pleasure. She also says, if there's a women's movement, it's not the Western AIDS organizations. It's not even Western feminism. It's that so-called backward, unsophisticated evangelicalism that has actually wow. done more for women than anything else. And the last one was, there's a best-selling book called Half the Sky. It's by a New York Times columnist, Nicholas Kristof. At any rate, he also went around the world to look at the status of women in other countries. And he also came to the conclusion that it's Christians who are helping women more than mm -hmm. anyone else. And he put it this way, the evangelical church applies community pressure to bring wayward husbands back in line. It discourages <laughs> alcoholism and adultery practices that, that the author says has caused tremendous hardship to women, especially in places like Africa. So people who've done the studies around the world are also finding that evangelicalism, evangelicalism domesticates men. I don't think that word yeah. works so well <laughs> in our culture, but it makes, it reconnects men to their family and makes them loving husbands and fathers. You mentioned evangelical gender paradox, and I was going to ask you precisely about that, page 45 of your book. You say a larger study uncovered similar results in nations around the world, which you just referenced. Martin's study was titled The Pentecostal Gender Paradox. Indeed, a paradox, or at least you're right, contrary to what critics may expect. Martin found evangelical forms of Christianity benefit women by, quote, morally restraining the traditional autonomy of the male and the selfish or irresponsible of the male power. And that struck me because, again, there's so much animosity between genders. I mean, and, th and now we're into the whole LGBTQ and gender identity, you know, that we've sort of braided down culturally. And to talk about being a husband of one wife, a good man, <laughs> much less white. Of course, white, I mean, in your research, did you come across the white male seems to be the one that takes the most beating on us? I also like your phrase, the good man. One of the things that surprised me was that this book turned out to be the most controversial book I've written. And I was surprised because I really thought my last book, my last book was Love Thy Body, which... Which, by the way, my wife loved. And uh, she saw you uh, interview Elisa Childers as a friend, and she bought the book, and she said, this is incredible. She's coming into my office, reading me quotes all the time. Like, leave <laughs> me alone. 
<laughs> but Lovely Body deals with controversial issues like yes. abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. So I thought that would be the most controversial book. But apparently, at least within theologically conservative circles, we agree pretty much. And people appreciated Love Thy Body because it gave them a worldview approach. It gave them, you know, more language to talk to their kids, to talk to their secular friends. But in the Christian world, this book of masculinity has proven to be more controversial. When I taught it in my class, my students would tell their family and friends about it. And invariably, the first question would be, whose side is she on? Mm-hmm. You know, is she some male bashing feminist or is she some reactionary, you know, conservative? Right. And I had to rewrite that opening chapter multiple times to try huh. to disarm both sides. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things that was most helpful was uh, I'm coming back to the good man phrase. There was a sociologist. He's not a Christian, but he did a survey. He's very well known in his field, and so he gets invited to speak all around the world. And when he does, he asks young men a question, you know, all the way from Australia, you know, to France, (laughs) to Ecuador. He asks two questions. First, he says, what does it mean to be a good man? If you had a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. People had no problem answering that. They said things like honor, integrity, sacrifice, look out for the little guy, provide, protect be generous. And he would say, well, where'd you learn that? And they would say, it's just in the air we breathe. And in the West, they would say, it's our Judeo-Christian heritage. Then he would follow up with, okay, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, oh no, that's completely different. I want you to know these are not my words, so I'll read it to you. (laughs) That means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, be competitive, get rich, get laid. That's the competing scripts for masculinity that are in our culture today. Men are made in the image of God, and so they do know what it means to be the good man. You know, Romans 2, you know, the law of God is written in their hearts. They know what it means to be a good man universally. In fact, the first ever cross-cultural study done of concepts of masculinity by an anthropologist And he found that no matter how different they were on their understanding of what it means to be a man, all cultures expect men to perform what he calls the the three Ps, provide, protect, and procreate, meaning, you know, contribute to society to the next generation, be a father. So men know that universally. But there's this competing script of the real man. And when people talk about toxic forms of masculinity, they are referring to the real man. When it gets disconnected from a moral vision, the real man can, in fact, end up being entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And so I used that at the very beginning of the book because it tended to disarm people. When they said, whose side is she on? We don't have to wholesale defend or wholesale reject. We want to affirm the good man in all men have a sense of the good men. And then we want to help them think critically about the secular script of the real man. Leon Podles wrote one of the endorsements to your book, and I remember his book, The Feminization of the Church, came out, goodness, probably 30 years ago now. And I remember reading that when we lived in Northern Virginia. And if memory serves, he's Catholic, 
But his take was basically women are the ones that get on committees and they help and they volunteer. And there's reasons for that. Maybe they have time. Maybe they don't work outside the home. Maybe they're retired. Maybe they're widowed. But be that as it may, as an evangelical, as a Protestant, I would often retort, I'd say, if you allow women to be elders and pastors, and we would differentiate a pastor teacher as an elder in the Protestant vein, that it's a man, and that's controversial. But if you delimit elders and pastors, and you open that to women, you will not have men in the church. And as I've watched this happen in my career, ministry, lifespan, the churches that have gone more and more egalitarian, you won't find strong male leadership. And I mean that in a good sense. I mean that in a role modeling sense. You might be familiar, Dennis Rainey had sent me an article years ago, and it was the, I believe it was Newsweek or Time, but it was one of those one-page articles in the back of the magazine that was kind of, you know, a fun story. And it was about this elephant compound in Kenya, and the young male elephants were destroying. They were harassing the females. They were destroying the compound, and the trainers couldn't figure it out. The experts couldn't figure it out. And there was this elderly, I believe it was Kenyan man, who told them, you can't fix this. You need a bull. And they went somewhere else out of the region, and they flew a bull, male, older male, and dropped him in this compound. And they said it was comical that within a few hours, this bull was tossing these young males with its tusks out of the way, getting in between them and the females. And they said within a matter of days, everything in the compound was back in order. <laughs> yes. yes. Just because there was a presence of a male who said, no, you don't do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, anecdotal, but interesting. Well, people ask, or people here, I'm writing a book on masculinities. Well, what do you think are the differences between men and women? And I think we do have to acknowledge that. Yes. Let's start with biology. You can't argue with biology because that's facts. <laughs> Biologically, men are bigger, stronger, faster. This was a new word for me. They have more fast twitch muscles, which means they can react more quickly. Okay. They have 75% greater muscle mass, upper body, and 90% greater strength, upper body strength. And it's just natural that in all cultures, well, like I said before, the anthropologist found in his cross-cultural study, all cultures expect men to be the provider, the protector, and the father. Provide, pr protect, mm -hmm. procreate. It's it's universal, and it makes sense. Can you imagine if a woman is pregnant and nursing and goes off to war? Of course, she's not going to go off to war. Of course, she's not going to go hunt. You know, the, the buffalo, <laughs> whatever. We have to also, though, make sure that we're always talking about women in terms of their strengths. Usually, it's expressed in terms sure. of well, women are weaker, which makes them sound inferior. So it's important to say, no, women's superpower <laughs> is having babies. And that is a superpower because it takes incredible strength of character to raise an infant. You have to be on call 24 hours a day. You have to be willing to drop whatever you're doing at 3 a.m. in the morning when you know, the baby wakes up hungry. You have to be able to, whenever the baby's in distress, you don't scold them. You don't reason with them. You meet their need. Comfort. No matter what you wanted to be doing, it takes incredible character strength. And sensitivity to nonverbal cues, because the baby's not talking for the first couple of years. And you also have to be sensitive to threats in their environment. That's why mothers become mama bears. You know, you have to be incredibly 
sensitive to threats. So you have to express this in terms of these are women's strengths. You know, men have these strengths and women have these other strengths. And those are all biology, so you can't argue with those. Yes, if you get into more um, sort of abstract gender personality traits, men and women are certainly more alike than they're different. When Adam sees Eve, he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Yeah. You know, he says, hey, she's like me. <laughs> so men and women are more alike than they are different. Yes, ishma ish. She's from me. Yeah, ishma ish, beautiful Hebrew expression. This one, not like the rest one, not like the rest made from dirt. This one was from me, for me, and she fit. And that great epitaph, the man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. It was this perfect design that God had from the beginning. But we, we muck everything up, don't we? What what do you think when you look long-term down, let's say, the next decade or two? Because I have concerns about the church. I have concerns about roles. I have concerns about what's happened with the I mean, even the, the Leah Thompson discussion today with female athletes, you know, I, I throw my hands up and go as a Christian, how do you encourage other people to say, there's a time to say no, there's a time to fight. But as I look at my grandchildren, I know you do too, what do you think the next decade or two needs to be the focus of how we talk about this, how we address it, what do we do? Well, the most important long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is close, loving bonds between fathers and sons. And right now, 40% of American children are growing up without contact with their natural father. 40%. It's the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. What a thing wow. to be leading the world in. And so many, many young men are growing up without a close relationship with their father. There's a psychiatrist who I quote who says, we're not going to get a better group of men until we get a better group of fathers, fathers who are willing to really stick it out and be there for their sons. So the long-term solution is we need to look at these fatherless kids. Everyone knows, I mean, it, it used to be a conservative stance, but now it's conservative and liberal. You know, the, the data is in that single parent families are just not as effective that they have Children, and especially boys, are more likely to drop out of school, have problems in school, more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, more likely to get pregnant outside of marriage, more likely to end up behind bars in prison. I used to work for Prison Fellowship, which is an international prison ministry, and we knew all too well that like 90%, yeah. especially violent, violent offenders, 90% of violent offenders, roughly, are from fatherless homes. And so two things. One, we need to really focus on getting fathers more involved with their children. And secondly, I would suggest that churches should make it a major ministry to minister to fatherless boys. I don't think anyone's really sort of carved that out, you know, as a special ministry. If we're going to have an impact on the next generation, father substitutes can have a great impact. A youth pastor, a youth group leader, a coach. A teacher can have an incredible impact on a young boy. And so I think that churches should really rethink, reprioritize maybe some of their ministries and make this one a higher on their list of priorities is how do we reach out to fatherless boys? The last five to seven years, the media change has been so tectonic. 
And Cindy and I, we've almost disconnected completely from cable news because it's so infuriating. But the American public is still getting the majority of its information and truth from social media, from Instagram, from Bill Maher. Broadcast news outnumbers cable by, what, 20 to 1? Talk a lot about cable TV, but actually viewership is much different in broadcast. And then the younger generation, Gen Z, they're not learning in those ways. They're learning from Instagram, from TikTok, from very short informational clips. So when I look at the big picture, my concern is the lack of history, lack of biblical knowledge and awareness. They don't even know how to read the Bible, much less understand the context in which it's written and applied. And then you talked about the failure of the family. Tony Evans also wrote for your book, and Tony would be the first to you know acknowledge the African-American family, apart from men stepping back in, there is no solution. So it becomes not to be, you know, Eeyore and pessimistic, but okay, let's say the churches do implement these programs. Can you give me any more hope, Nancy? Because to me, it seems like we've lost. It seems like the snowball is going down the hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and men feel piled on in church too. And if we just say be better, you know, do more. In my book, Toxic Masculinity, I go back and look at the changing views of fathers because everybody knows Today, fathers are mocked in the media. They're ridiculed. Yep. They're always the butt of the joke, the dimwit dad, the doofus dad. And so, you know, no wonder fatherhood has lost status. And no wonder, you know, fewer men want to become fathers. So that too started with the Industrial Revolution, though, because once fathers, you know, were no longer in the home, no longer teaching their children day in and day out what it meant to be a man you know, what it meant to acquire adult skills. Now men are in the workplace in this mysterious, you know, kids don't see them all day. And already in the 19th century, you see people begin to protest that fathers are no longer involved with their kids. The comparative relationship of children with their kids, children with their fathers, they were losing that relationship. One of the phrases that you see in the literature of the time, they're becoming Sunday dads. You know, they're only there on the weekends, really. And the leading psychologist of the 19th century said, never before in American history have boys been so wild, you know, because their fathers were not not there to discipline them. And never before have they been so half-orphaned and left up to female guidance in family, school, and church. Half-orphaned. Isn't that a great phrase? Because yep. in their day, you know, they were acutely aware of what they'd lost by fathers being out of the home all day. And this is what you start seeing in the literature of the time. People began to say, well, fathers are irrelevant. Fathers are incompetent because the fathers were no longer in touch with what was happening in the home. They were no longer, you know, tuned in to their kids' needs and their kids' experience. And so, it's really sad that already in the 19th century, you see people begin to denigrate fathers because they're just not there. And so they can't be effective fathers. And so I, you cannot raise these issues without at least having some solutions. So I do in my book, Toxic War and Masculinity, I have a chapter on practical ways that men can kind of tweak the workplace. You know, we can't undo the industrial revolution, but can we tweak it a bit so that fathers mm-hmm. do have more time at home? And the pandemic, the very slight silver lining in the pandemic was that a lot of fathers found they liked being home more. Mm -hmm. 65% in one survey, 65% of fathers said they did not want to go back to work full time. 
that they had better relationships with their families because they had worked from home during the pandemic. That study is in the book. There's a more recent one that was not in the book because it's more recent, but it was a headline in the New York Times. I love this headline. It said something like, during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their children and they don't want to lose that. So I do give a lot of sort of anecdotal stories in toxic war and masculinity of people who've managed to work two days a week at home or start a home business or consulting business. I'll give you just one concrete example. So one of my students was married to an IT professional. And of course, during the pandemic, he came home and worked from home. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved with their family's homeschooling. He decided he would be the one to make lunch every day. He was able to drive them to their sports activities. And he picked up so much of the parenting responsibilities that my student, by the way, she was an opera singer. I had a student who was an opera singer. <laughs> my student was able to start a voice studio part-time. And so the whole family benefited from the added income. And when I interviewed her husband, he said, I'm never going back to a cubicle. Our family is so much better <laughs> balanced now. And the final kicker was the time I used to spend commuting to work. I now spend praying with my wife every morning. So I, I give examples like that so that people can have hope. And the surveys show that millennials actually want this more. They're not content to say, well, you know, as a, as a man, I can't really be an involved father. No, they want to be involved fathers. And so mm -hmm. they're actually pushing for more better balance. By the way, this was a surprise. On surveys, men report just as much work-family conflict as women do. People assume that's a woman's thing. But surveys show that men report just as much a sense of tension that I'm not being involved as, in my family as much as I want to. And on the other hand, of course, many women have talents and skills and have been educated into being able to have talents that take them you know, beyond the home. I think the solution for both is to bring more work home. Most women I know do have home-based businesses of some kind, do work part-time from home because it's almost impossible to live on a single salary now. Most women do, in fact, have some kind of a home-based work, which keeps the sort of a foot in the adult world while they're raising toddlers, and, and, which is what I did, of course. I mean, all the books I wrote, I was mostly home-based and sitting beside the swimming pool while my son had swim lessons or sitting beside the soccer field. And people would say, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm editing a book. What? Yep. <laughs> you don't yep. expect that answer. <laughs> That's how I wrote <laughs> most of my books. While my sons were either in, in a class, one of my sons volunteered at nature centers, you know, integrating life and work in that way seems a lot healthier. And a lot of people would actually prefer that is what they say on surveys. You know, interesting, the idea of the pandemic and people working at home. I was raised very differently. My father was a traveling salesman. He left Monday and came home Friday my entire life. But what Joe Easley did with, he had two boys and a, a daughter. Friday night he got home and the weekend was sketched out. We were mowing the yard, working on a car. We were fixing something. We were cleaning something. He had us doing physical work my entire life. And even though he might have been a, I had a psychologist friend tell me one time, you were a abandoned and neglected child. I said, no, I thought dad was making a living, you know. But anyway, I would come home and we had a work project. And it might be the most tedious, nonsensical project. Take everything out of the garage and clean it and put it back. <laughs> 
But he taught my brother and me and my sister a work ethic that to this day we all attribute. He's long gone, but we say, Joe Easley taught us all to work hard. And my sister and brother and I are all pretty accomplished people in our fields. And we would say, because dad said, get there a little early, pick up a broom, clean something up, ask, can I help? If you're out of work, what else can I do? And I think that whole, you know, not to vilify the idea of going to work to make a living. And you know, my mother, bless her heart, her mission in life was to care for her three children. She was the most sacrificial person. I, so e- my point is, even in an imperfect situation where the roles were defined, they were willingly taken on. It wasn't, you know, I got to raise these three kids and your father's gone. It was your dad's out there making a living. And this is also post-depression. So it's a very different culture today. And we do have creative ways to earn. But my point simply is, if you're the man God wants you to be, the woman God wants you to be, the father God wants you to be, the wife God wants you to be, you'll do well, even in a fallen context where things aren't as, you know, Edenic as we wish they were. Nancy Piercy, Piercy's newest book, Strategic Guide to the War on Masculinity, talks about masculinity. The other thing we did not talk about, she has a 14-part study guide in the back, which I so appreciate. So you can use this in a small group, in a Sunday school class. Grab a handful of friends and let's say, let's read this book, take it apart. Let's criticize it. Let's do the study guide together and let's think critically. We need it more now than ever, Nancy. I think we've lost our history. We've certainly lost our biblical theology. So thanks for your hard work. And I hope and pray that the book does well and many people are challenged in their thinking and more importantly in their behavior on what it means to be a a good man at a time like this. Uh, Thank you so much. Yes, I really enjoyed talking with you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.